Continuing uh, my sermon series on the uh, 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament, and uh, today we're looking at Zephaniah. Zephaniah's name means God is hidden. And uh, Zephaniah prophesied in the 7th century, sometime between 640 and 609 B.C. It was during the reign of King Josiah who uh, launched his reform in 621 B.C. after finding a scroll of the law in the temple, which was, in essence, the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Zephaniah sounds very much like a prophet that we looked at earlier, the prophet Amos, because his words are that of harsh judgment against Judah and some of the other surrounding countries. It is judgment on those who have turned their back on God, on engaging things uh, that we've talked about. You, you know the list. Idolatry, violence, fraud, apathy, and the neglect of the poor. And Zephaniah tells the people that the day of the Lord is near and that God is their only hope. And if they don't turn to him... They had better watch out. A day of reckoning, Zephaniah, will come that will be so harsh that humans and, yes, even animals are going to experience a divine judgment. God says this in chapter 1, verse 3 of Zephaniah. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Now, one of the things that we've learned in looking at the minor prophets is that they are not just prophets of doom and gloom, but they are also prophets of hope. And Zephaniah is no exception because as he moves through his words, his book goes from from chastisement to, to comfort, from judgment to restoration. You see, there's this core group of people who are going to be left over from the judgment of God, and upon those people, God will pour out his love. And so I invite you to join me as we look at the beginning of the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then I'm skipping down a little bit and reading verses 14 through 16. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah. Woo, man. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our uh, second scripture reading is also from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, It's Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, my scattered ones, shall bring my offering. 
On that day you shall not be put to shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will pasture and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, how many of you have ever read a C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales? Well, we might have to do a Sunday school class or a sermon series on that. Uh, the books are so much better than movies, by the way. But in the C.S. Lewis uh, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, if you know the story, is the great uh, representative uh, Christ figure, the great lion. And in one scene, the children hear a description of Aslan, the lion, for the very first time. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. As I sort of launch us into our message here this morning, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that our God is an awesome God who reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love? Our God is an awesome God. A great lion. The great lion. The king. Or, is God for you a safe deity that you have simply pared down to manageable bagel bite-sized proportions? Were you drawn here this morning into this room with a desire to worship the living God in Jesus Christ our Lord? Or is this simply for you a time-honored tradition of coming to this place? When you were singing, Come Thou Almighty King, was that your personal praise concert to God? Or were you just mindlessly mouthing lyrics that you have heard over and over again and know so well? Too often, I think, God's presence is about as welcomed in our lives as a Pennsylvania State Trooper when we're pulled over for doing 75 miles per hour on Route 272. That was the big problem for the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of the prophet Zephaniah. The people had turned away from God and his presence so that they had nothing to turn to except gods, with a small g, of their own making. They worshipped with the old King James version of the Bible called graven images. In other words, idols like the sun, the moon, the stars, along with pagan gods, of Baal and Milcom. 
Now you know that the second commandment forbid that the people of Israel will make any image their God. So that means no form of anything in heaven and on earth or the waters, nothing else could represent God. In every single area of the universe, nothing else could be used to represent the creator. God was the creator of the whole world and the universe. We say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so in Israel, to identify God with anything else in creation was to point way too low. Authentic, genuine worship was never to be directed towards any image that symbolized anything other than God. Now, unfortunately, that can sometimes happen in the church. One time I was... Uh, leading a lesson with the youth in a church that I served previously on symbols and idols, and we learned all about the Christian symbols that are represented in the Bible, like the cross, like fire, the dove, water, and other symbols. And one point of the lesson was to teach them that we have to be careful never to elevate those symbols over and above God. For example, we don't worship the cross, right? but we worship God and Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. We don't worship the Lord's table. We celebrate the partaking of the bread and the cup as we are then lifted to Christ's presence. We don't worship the Bible. That's Bible idolatry. Instead, we worship the living God who is revealed through his divinely inspired word. And if we were to read the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, we would discover just how awesome our God is. Sometimes I think we can be our own worst enemy, especially when it comes to our attitude in our worship and relationship with God. In Isaiah, God says, I can't stand your singing. I hate your prayers. You bring me meaningless offerings. I abhor your worship. Now, why in the world would God say that? Well, we get the answer when God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from it. It is very possible to come through the doors of this building and into worship and stand and sit down at the designated times without ever touching the living God. There was a study done at one of the major universities that looked at mainline denominations and specifically why the first rows of the church pews are always empty. And you know that most of the people who come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning want to sit towards the back as I have a cartoon that I want to show you that was never more evident than, than what you're going to see on the screen. With the usher saying, there are plenty of seats farther up front. What they discovered in that study is that a majority of the people who responded and said that the reason why they sit in the back, you want to know what the reason is? They're afraid to get too close to God. We're a lot like the cowardly lion in front of the great Oz in the movie, The Wizard of Oz. In other words, God, you're, you're fine at a distance, but I, I don't want to get too close to you. Who knows? You might call on me. 
In Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're all upset because uh, the disciples are doing things that they don't think is right. Uh, they, they browbeat Jesus about the disciples' uh, religious style and habits. Uh, they, they say to Jesus, your disciples, they're breaking all the traditions. They, they don't even wash their hands before they eat. So the Pharisees, they sort of had reduced worship to this series of fussy little rituals and ceremonies. I think the same thing happens to us today. An Episcopal priest by the name of Terry Fulham writes this, I'm thinking of a woman whose life passion is the length of the candles on the altar. If the pastor's stole is slightly out of balance, it absolutely invalidates that worship for this poor woman. I have a theory about her. I think that people who do not have a growing personal relationship with the living God often fasten to the externals of worship. You begin to tamper with the external, and you're touching the nearest thing to God that they know anything about. What do you have to have to have a church? A building, a table, a pulpit, a lectern, flowers? What do you have to have beyond the people who gather in the name of Jesus and who are assured of his presence as they gather in his name? I think a problem that we have is that we have just lost a sense of awe. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve got lost in trying to be God rather than in awe of God. Aaron got so bored that he made a golden calf. David got into one big mess after another because he was the one who wanted to be in control. Judas forgot all about the mission of Jesus as the Messiah and got wrapped up in politics and greed. When Sir Isaac Newton was working on his theories of gravity and motion, he believed that he was discovering laws that had already been established by the Creator. But then along came the 18th century, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment. And God somehow got pushed from the 50-yard line to the sidelines of our lives. He became the God of the gaps, only to be called upon ever to explain irregularities in nature. And since then, philosophers have sort of offered up various theses like the silence of God, the absence of God, the eclipse of God, the death of God. I think another problem that we have is we simply take God for granted. Pastor at a Baptist church in Chicago was talking about the time that Michael Jordan came to worship there. And he attended a few times, but then he had to stop coming. Would you like to know why? The reason is that whenever Michael Jordan walked in the room, people started worshiping Michael Jordan, and they stopped worshiping God. And so he had to stop going to church. Imagine if we were to run an ad in the local paper or in the Lancaster paper that said, Chestnut Level Presbyterian Church, 1068 Chestnut Level Road, Quarryville, Pennsylvania. Sunday worship, 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Michael Jordan will be there. What do you think would happen? You know what would happen. People would come out of the woodwork to want to be in worship here on a Sunday. That's right. Basketball coach Glenn Robinson says. But now imagine if we ran this ad. Chestnut Level Presbyterian Church, 1068 Chestnut Level Road, Quarryville, Pennsylvania, Sunday worship, 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., God will be there. What would the reaction be? 
probably would draw a few yawns. So what? Of course, that goes without saying. Now, how do you think God feels about that? I might imagine God saying, well, I'm just so honored that you feel that way about me. I'm nothing more than the air that you breathe. You don't give me a second thought. Isn't that great? See, I have a sense that God does not like to be taken for granted. Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. So, how do we rediscover our sense of awe? How do we not take God for granted? I think we just need to see God as revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we will see is the awesome God who created all that there is is none other than the one who came into this world not to condemn the world, but to bring us salvation. So that when we focus our hearts and minds and devote our lives to Jesus Christ, the one that we meet in the New Testament, he's no meek and mild Casper milk toast, but instead, as one Christian writer put it, one who grabs us by the scruff of the neck to shake loose from us all false images of deity we have cherished, smashing to bits our trivial gods. I'll close with this. story that Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor, tells about a minister who was in Italy and he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries earlier. The man was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but apparently a little bit afraid of it too. The man had this huge stone slab placed over his grave so that he would not be raised from the dead just in case there actually was a resurrection from the dead. And he had insignias put all over that slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I do not believe in it. Well, evidently, when he was buried, a tiny acorn fell into his grave. And about a hundred years later, that acorn grew up through the grave and split that stone slab. It was now this tall, towering oak tree. And the minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Friends, the one crucified on the cross for the sake of your sin and mine became the one who was resurrected and triumphed over death in the grave so that we could begin life anew with him. So that when you decide to receive Jesus Christ in your heart as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. What a totally awesome God. You think about that. Let's pray. God, you are totally awesome, and we just pray that you would help us to have that sense of awe and wonder and praise and not lose the fact that you came for us and lived for us and died for us and was raised for us. And someday, whenever that time may come, you're going to take us home to be with you. Help us, O oh God, 
to be joyful in our worship of you, to not be casual or cavalier or nonchalant, but to sing like we mean it, to pray like we mean it, to live our lives like we mean it. Oh God, draw us close to you as you have drawn close to us in the person and power of Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray, amen.